0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. So happy to welcome you here this evening. I'd like to introduce uh, among our many friends and cohorts at the Commonwealth Club, the chair of our board is here, Martha Ryan, her husband, Greg Ryan. So happy to have Martha's strength and support and leadership for this organization. So this evening, we are hosting the inaugural inaugural George P. Schultz Lecture, which is brought to you in partnership with the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Thank you, everyone, who's joining us here in person. It is great to see people in person, isn't it, these days? And thank you to all who are joining us online for this important discussion. We have... Quite a number of people registered and joining us uh, through the internet. This new series is spearheaded and supported by the Toby Philanthropies. And I want to thank you, Tad and Diane Toby, for your support of this event, for joining us here this evening, where we are meeting in the Toby Auditorium. Thank you for your support for the club and for supporting this incredible new series to celebrate the life and legacy of an extraordinary American statesman and our very good friend here in the Bay Area, George Schultz. A little more than one year ago, Mr. Schultz passed away at the age of 100. He was one of this country's most distinguished public servants ever. He served uh, as secretary in three U.S. administrations, Uh, as Secretary of Labor, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, Secretary of the Treasury, and Secretary of State. He was also a long-time friend and participant at the Commonwealth Club. His wife, Charlotte Schultz, served on the Commonwealth Club's board for over 30 years. She was on the board when I arrived 26 years ago, and she was still on the board when she more recently passed away. Um, Mr. Schultz, once took me aside and told me that he wanted to tell me what he especially liked about the Commonwealth Club. He was often here. He spoke here. He participated in many activities. And I got ready for him to say something about all of the amazing people that were here, the dialogue, the discussions that went on. And what he told me was that the thing he really valued about the club was that our program started and ended on time. And Um, Of course, he also said many other nice and wonderful things over the years, but to him that was meaningful because as a very busy person, a very engaged person, the fact that we did our programs, did our activities, and they started and ended and it was predictable and he could move on to other things was important for him. That in a way minimizes or trivializes his impact and Charlotte's impact. Um, This building that you're in, uh, was opened only in 2017. Uh, many people here helped with the building in various ways. Charlotte and George Shulps were the co- honorary co-chairs of the capital campaign that led us, uh, supported us to build this building. So they lent their name. They also threw parties for us. Uh, had wonderful parties at their uh, apartment on Green Street for us, helping us to raise funds. And we had many wonderful donors, including the Toby family and others of you here, but their role at the club was fundamental. We really would not be here in this lovely building if they had not lent us their name and their prestige to the building. So um, throughout his later years, uh, Mr. Schultz continued to be extremely engaged in uh, the diplomatic and political life of the Bay Area, California, the nation, and the world. His influence, you didn't have to look very far to see his influence in many, many different ways, in many different issues. Um, he once told me that he had been the person who whispered in Governor Schwarzenegger's ear that climate change was an important problem and that the governor should look at do, doing something about that legislatively. He also told me about how on the GM board, he had advocated for GM to produce electric vehicles uh, zero emission vehicles and that that's why Jake GM had gotten into that field um, he he was everywhere advising uh, leaders uh, in, in many many different fields um, he it was an honor to me to join him occasionally at the Hoover Institution in particular as he dedicated himself in his later years to what he saw as the great, overarching cause, which was to decrease the danger that we would annihilate ourselves with nuclear weapons. So I'm delighted on many, many counts to welcome you here tonight to celebrate his life and to discuss his legacy with those who worked with him during his life of service and those who are carrying on that work now. Among his many colleagues who wanted to participate in this celebration of his work, first let me introduce one of his distinguished colleagues who could not attend in person but wanted to share her thoughts on George Shultz's legacy. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Condoleezza Rice, 66th U.S. Secretary of State, my good friend, and the Tad and Diane Toby Director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford, who's joining us here virtually.
1: Hello, I'm Condoleezza Rice the 66th United States Secretary of State, and also a former National Security Advisor. I'm currently the Director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. I'm honored to welcome everyone to tonight's George P. Schultz lecture, with outstanding panelists representing the Reagan Institute, the Hoover Institution, and Pepperdine University. While I am sorry that I cannot join you in person, I want you to know that tonight's lecture is near and dear to my heart. First, I want to thank my friends, Tad and Diane, the visionary and generous underwriters of tonight's lecture. They are people who have, throughout their lifetime, given generously to causes, generously to the betterment of our country, and they were great, great friends of George Schultz. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting tonight's lecture and being a fantastic forum for discussions like tonight. In our community. Thank you to the Reagan Institute for spearheading tonight's lecture. Secretary Schultz was a longtime trustee of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, and I was honored at his request to assume his role as a Reagan Foundation trustee when he stepped down. And thank you to tonight's panelists Philip Talman, Kyron Skinner, and Francis Tilney Burke. You are all amazing scholars whose insights into George Shultz the man and your expansive understanding of his impact on our nation will make tonight special for everyone involved. I just know that George is looking down and smiling. Finally, I want to honor my friend, Secretary George P. Shultz. George P. Shultz was a great businessman. He was a scholar, an economist. He was a Marine, and he never let you forget that. And he was a great public servant. When I was asked to be Secretary of State, I called him. I said, George, you've had every job in government. He'd been Labor Secretary, Treasury Secretary, Director of OMB. I said, what do you think? He said, well, I think Secretary of State is the best job in government. Well, he should have known. And he did it awfully well representing our country, representing our values, representing our interest, helping Ronald Reagan to end the Cold War. We are grateful for George P. Schultz and for everything that he did for our country because of all of his many titles throughout his lifetime. The one that, to my mind, describes him most is Patriot. George was fond of wearing a tie, to remind all Americans that democracy is not a spectator sport. And certainly he lived that every day of his life. Thank you for honoring my friend. Thank you for honoring our friend, George P. Schultz.
0: Our thanks to Dr. Rice for sharing those thoughts with us. Now, I would like to welcome our partners at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, who are joining us tonight from Washington, D.C., as well as Southern California. Ronald Reagan and George Shultz worked together on some of the most important diplomatic initiatives of our time. And it's only fitting that the Ronald Reagan Institute helped to champion the legacy of Secretary Shultz through this series. I'm delighted to introduce the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute, who will be leading tonight's conversation with our distinguished guests. Please join me in welcoming Roger Zackheim.
2: Well, thank you, Gloria, for the introduction, and uh, just wonderful to be here in person at the Commonwealth Club. As you heard, my name is Roger Zackheim. I'm the director of the Reagan Institute, which is the D.C. office of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The home turf is here in California, down in Simi Valley. And it's a real honor to be the moderator this evening. And before we begin, I wanted just to kind of give our own gloss on, on this event. This inaugural George P. Schultz lecture is our attempt to honor Secretary Schultz's legacy, the man, the statesman and a cherished friend and mentor uh, to many in this room. And this is a collaboration, as was noted, between the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation Institute and Toby Philanthropies. Um, We'll be hosting two lectures, of course, the first and the second one, will take place in Washington, D.C., this fall. And this series was originally conceived in honor of Secretary Schultz on the anniversary of his 100th birthday it was our attempt to celebrate and introduce more people to his incredible achievements and in leadership and service in the United States, as Dr. Rice just captured. I want to thank Tad and Diane Toby for their support for this important effort. Um, it's been a long time coming. We've been working on this, and just so happy to be here. Uh, and Tad, I, I know you had such a special relationship with Secretary Schultz. So you being here tonight is it makes it all the more meaningful. When I was asked sorry, when, when Secretary Schultz was asked about his foreign policy while serving as Secretary of State, George Schultz would always answer in the following way Quote, I do not have one. The President has one. My job is to help formulate it and carry it out. That's not normally a Washington way of answering a question. For this is classic George Schultz, a man who prioritized mission and nation over credit and self-aggrandizement. But tonight, we'll take an opportunity to give credit where credit is due. It would be a daunting task for one person to do justice to George Schultz's remarkable achievements as soldier, or statesman, I shouldn't say soldier, as marine, scholar, and statesman. But fortunately, this evening, we're joined by three luminaries, each of which I'll introduce and then I'll call them onto the stage. Philip Taubman, Dr. Kyron Skinner, and Francis Burke, and they'll each provide unique perspective into Secretary Schultz's life and legacy. Philip Taubman is a professor at Stanford University, formerly Moscow Bureau Chief and Washington Correspondent for the New York Times. At Stanford, he received exclusive access to... George Shultz's private papers to produce the first authorized and comprehensive biography of George Shultz. And you may have seen beforehand an image of what that book will look like when it comes out in January, titled, In the Nation's Service, The Life and Times of George P. Shultz. Dr. Skinner first came to know George Shultz, as I understand, as a research assistant at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Skinner is currently a Tauby Professor of International Relations at Pepperdine University in the School of Public Policy, and previously served director of the Office of Policy Planning in the US Department of State. She's held other roles in government. Her PhD is from Harvard University and has had many prominent academic posts. But the one I'll note in terms of her accomplishment, she is the author of several books. The one I want to highlight is Reagan in His Own Hand, A Life in Letters. And Reagan, Life in Letters. And those books did a big service to those who want to understand President Reagan. And Reagan, his own hand, of course, had introduction from George Shultz. Last, Dr. Frances Burke is the George P. Shultz Visiting Fellow at the Ronald Reagan Institute. She holds a Ph.D. in international relations from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, and will soon publish a book on the Reagan administration's policies in Latin America. She's held positions in the Department of Defense prior to her time in academia, and also as a Navy Reserve officer. And an intelligence analyst. So I will now, after those introductions, uh, ask them to come to the stage, uh, and um, we can begin. Please join and welcome our panel. Thank, you.
3: Thank you. you. Want me there?
4: All right.
2: Now, before we begin, some some housekeeping. Um, We are eager for questions uh, from the audience, and we'll integrate them into the conversation. So for those in person, uh, each of you will find a question card on your chair. Please write your questions, and they'll be collected during the program and brought up to me so I can uh, make sure our distinguished panelists have an opportunity to answer your questions. For those watching online, uh, please post your questions in the YouTube chat box, and those questions will be forwarded to me during the program. So let's jump into the conversation um, I want to pick up the cards that I had over there, but I don't have them with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start from memory until those questions that are not from the audience but from my notes arrive right here, yes. Um, but we'll, we'll start with uh, Dr. Skinner. Uh, Kyron, uh, great to have you here. Um, you, of course, uh, have studied and worked with Secretary Schultz. Uh, thank you um, Assessing his diplomacy during the Cold War, that uh, obviously pivotal to, as Margaret Thatcher uh, remarked, uh, the Reagan administration, President Reagan um, won the Cold War without firing a a shot, and George Shultz was a big part of that. Uh, Talk to us about his diplomacy and kind of the principles that guided him uh, during those remarkable years where he served as Secretary of State.
3: Um, Thanks for that question. If you don't mind, if I take a second, there are so many friends in the room, and It really is like a full circle moment. Um, I've worked with um, Tad and Diane for decades now, and the books that you mentioned, um, they help support. Um, Everywhere you turn in the Bay Area, there is a Tad and Diane Toby influence. So um, I think there's more here than we probably know. But the book Reagan, A Life in Letters would not have been without their support um, 20 years ago. It's um, quite a long time. And Gloria Duffy um, was, I don't think everyone knows, and that she and Condi Rice were roommates and pre-docs together at Stanford in the 80s, the first group of women to be fellows at um, the Center for International Security and I think it's now Arms Control or Cooperation. But they were early fellows. Both of them were mentors of mine. And I remember sitting at Gloria's um, dining room table after George Schultz offered me the job, figuring out um, what my salary would be. (laughs) Gloria's a tough negotiator, so I did better um, because of her. And so we've all worked together in one way or another. Um, And so I had to deal with
2: that diplomacy. I did. And so
3: I have to say Schultz was unique and he and Tad, it's no surprise that they would become good friends. And we were together at George Schultz's 95th birthday, um, Tad and Diane, do you remember, at the penthouse in San Francisco? Diane Feinstein was there, Condoleezza Rice, completely bipartisan, a diverse group of friends. I think that party represented his life. Um, and the fact that his version of diplomacy was nonpartisan but pro-American, he cared more about our interest. Um, and our values, as, all, as um, Condu, Condoleezza Rice has said, than anything else. And so I've not met a senior statesman who was less political in that way. Mm. Um, for him, it wasn't party. It was what we now call America first, but in a very different way. And a commitment to community as well. In the later stages of his life, you saw his diplomacy, his emphasis on what the interest of the larger community um, should be in the work that he did in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and at the Hoover Institution. I think for him it was a seamless web from the early years of his life and career to the later ones, the emphasis on the interest and not his personal interest. You mentioned brilliantly that... Um, He said, I don't have a foreign policy. The president does. He is probably the last person that I know to really take that view. Condi Rice had that view as well, but most don't. Not just secretaries of state, but cabinet officials. He had no other agenda than fulfilling that of his principle. And for him, and he says it in his memoir, um, trust is the coin of the realm. And he, when he could trust someone, he really would work with them over long periods of time. Um, in terms of more specifics on policy, I think the four-part agenda that we've talked about before is underappreciated as the key strategy for ending the Cold War. Instead of working on one or two fronts, the Reagan administration worked on all arms control, regional disputes with the Soviets human rights issues and other bilateral problems, not one was more important than the other. But if there was a first among equals, it was actually human rights. And in 1983, at the height of the renewed Cold War, with Reagan's SDI speech, his evil empire speech, the fear of nuclear war renewed, um... Reagan and Schultz were quietly negotiating with Yuri Andropov, the Soviet general secretary, to release seven Pentecostals who'd lived for almost five years in the basement of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And that predated um, the major arms control shifts, and I think it really began um, a thaw in relations. So I think the the human rights dimension, um, not just the arms control one, is underappreciated, And as um, Phil Taubman knows better than anyone, Schultz repeatedly asked to bring Jewish refuseniks on the plane with him wherever he traveled. He said, just let them on my plane. Let me bring them home. And the story of Ida Nudel Nudel. Nudel was really a touching one when she called him on the phone when he was at the State Department and said, when she finally got out of the Soviet Union, I'm home.
2: Well. Kyron, thank you for that. And, and Philip, I wanted to follow up on, on two things that Kyron just, just hit on. Um, first, we'll hit on, on the human rights piece because um, we were talking about this before um, coming to the stage. But in, in President Reagan's diaries, mm-hmm. uh, his first communication that he had with Brezhnev, um, his personal note, not the note that the State Department handed him, uh, was about Sharansky and the plight of of that refusenik um so maybe philip you can uh take a step back and talk about the place of human rights and in in uh secretary schultz's legacy and then also uh the second piece what karen just hit on uh trusted in the is the coin of the realm because in his later years um i remember the last op-ed i read uh, that he penned i think it was for the wall street journal mm-hmm. uh forgive me maybe it was the new york times philip but I, don't, I don't know um <laughs> but it it That's what he focused on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so maybe uh, reflect on that in in terms of why that was pivotal to his leadership and what he wanted to see in leaders.
4: Thank you. And uh, thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, So when you think of George Shultz and trust, the value of trust, he has a phrase that he used repeatedly. Many of you have probably heard it from him. Trust is the coin of the realm. Uh, and you could see that in the way he conducted uh, his business. I, uh, <coughs> Helmut Schmidt, the German chancellor, uh, at one point uh, said to me in an interview I did with him for this biography, he said the the essential thing with George Shul- Schultz was that you could trust him. You could trust him. Okay. And as I traced his relationship with different world figures, I could see how he worked on that. And the example I'll give you uh, was Edward Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister. So as many of you remember, uh, when George became secretary of state, the Soviet foreign minister was Andrei Gromyko, Uh, had been in that job for decades. Uh, There was no more grim, humorless figure in international diplomacy (laughs) than Andrei Gromyko. (laughs) Gorbachev takes over, and within a few months of becoming Soviet leader, he basically kicks Gromyko upstairs, uh, makes him president of the Soviet Union, which at that point was an honorary position. And he appoints Shevardnadze, who comes from Georgia, at the time a Soviet republic. And the two men, uh, Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, had bonded uh, as they rose up through the ranks of the Communist Party. So George Shultz learns that there is now a new Soviet foreign minister. uh, And he's got a meeting set in Helsinki uh, for the first meeting with Shevardnadze. And he says to his wife, Obi Schultz, I want you to come with me. Let's go to Helsinki together. Because I think we can have a relationship with Edward Shevardnadze and his wife. And so off they go. And there is this amazing scene in... uh, (laughs) in Finlandia Hall in Helsinki where the U.S. delegation is seated in the front row. It's uh, uh, done under the uh, French, so Etats is in front, and the Soviet Union is in the back. Schultz walks in, puts his papers down at the American table, turns around and walks slowly up the steps to the back of the hall where Shevardnadze is seated, and shakes his hand. There was a hush in the hall as people watch this. That was their first meeting. Later, as they got to know each other a little bit, uh, George worked out this uh, theatrical encounter with Shevardnadze where uh, he knew, of course, Shevardnadze came from Georgia. So he figured, let's perform Georgia on my mind, right? (laughs) 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 So he arranged to have several of the American diplomats in Moscow who spoke fluent Russian. They wrote out the verses of George On My Mind in Russian, and they performed it uh, to Shevarnadze, and then George sang it in English. And, and you could see these men bonding together that day. Uh, and then the last piece of this is fast forward. Shevardnadze is now living back in Tbilisi. He had been president of Georgia after it became an independent country. I went to see him. He had advanced Parkinson's disease, and he could barely move around his office, but he sent an aide to the far end of the office to bring him some papers. He put them in his lap, and then he handed them to me. These were the Christmas cards that Charlotte and George Schultz had sent him for over a decade, and he had kept them because that was such an important friendship to him. So why, why don't I stop there? I've not answered all your questions.
2: No, no, yet. but I mean, it, it does capture kind of the trust piece. And and, and part of that is building meaningful relationships right. that obviously had an impact mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the worldwide. Francis, let, let, let's shift over to you. Um, as I mentioned, you are working on a book about Reagan's uh, Central American policy. As you've been in the archives, and fortunately you've been able to do that in person of late, Mm -hmm. uh, not just uh, virtually, Um, what have you seen while you've been exploring those archives in terms of uh, Secretary Schultz as it relates to your research, Mm -hmm. uh, and more broadly, what you've you've come across?
5: Sure. Um, I should first say it's a very daunting task to be the George P. Schultz Fellow, um, because it's... Going to be extremely difficult to step into Secretary Schultz's shoes, but I'm doing my best. And I, and I would like to say how important it is that these fellowships exist um, for young and mid-career scholars. Um, I'm a huge proponent of applied history, where you learn, you know, from the past. And I think we can all learn from the incredible leadership um, and collegiality of secretary george schultz and so i'm very pleased to be here as the george p schultz fellow and to answer your question about the archives there's one thing i read at the hoover library that philip taubman did not read so (laughs) i wanted to talk about that among some other things so i am researching a book on ronald reagan's policies in central america and of course george schultz has a a lot to do with that And one of the people that I interviewed, and he'll remain nameless right now, but he he had worked for Secretary Schultz and knew Ronald Reagan very well. And I should have you close your ears as the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Now I'm very interested. Um, But he said, you know, listen, the policies, Reagan's policies in Central America were George Schultz's policies. And essentially Reagan followed what George Schultz recommended, um, which was not just military aid. And that's what a lot of us get from that era, you know, from the 80s, that we're just shoving military aid into Nicaragua and El Salvador. That was not the case. George Schultz was a proponent of economic development, um, democratization. Um, helping people, and he cared a lot about the people, and he wrote about that, and even in all of his testimony, and that's a lot of the things I read at the Hoover Library, um, in his papers, these 70, 80, 90 pages of transcripts where he's answering the questions of members of Congress and senators, it's not about military aid, it is a little bit, but it's also about developing a country, in many countries in Central America, that he felt really needed the leadership and the help Of the free world and the leader of the free world and there's nobody better to do that than the United States and I'm also very glad that dr. Duffy didn't say this I thought she might at the beginning but George Schultz actually gave a lecture um, in 1985 at the Commonwealth Club um, about called America and the struggle for freedom and a huge section of that lecture or that talk was actually about Latin America and the thing that really struck me um, was that George schultz didn't treat the region in a paternalistic way, and that's very common for the United States to do that—to sort of look down on our neighbors to the south. Maybe they need our teaching or they need our our leadership. He really gave them policy guidance, but felt strongly and said as much in his lecture at the Commonwealth Club that they could do it now with the support of the United States, of course. They could develop. They could be democracies. And the thing that he pointed out was that in 1979, only 30% of the countries in Latin America were democracies. By the time he gave this speech in 1985, almost 90% of the countries in Latin America were democracies or on the path to democracy. And I do think that George Schultz is the reason for that success. But you
2: said there was something you found. Oh, I forgot to Philip say that. Philip Talman sorry, didn't find. Yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm curious what that is. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. But Philip's pretty yeah. convinced that he saw every document. Okay, no, no. So sorry. No,
5: no, no. Let me get back to the I, document. I,
4: I, I told her before we <laughs> <started>. <laughs> she found one. Okay, <laughs> I did. share it with us quickly. I'm and I'll have track. a follow-up for Philip.
5: OK, so this was the best thing that I, I found in the library. Um, little piece of paper, like a buck slip, you know, a piece of paper that you get in the government. Um, he wrote notes. George Schultz wrote notes on uh, July 16th, 1982, which was the first day that he had a staff meeting with all of his um, senior staff at the secretary of state. And he wrote himself as new secretary of state. And he wrote himself little notes, which I found fascinating. So I'm trying to kind of decipher his handwriting. And he wrote four points to himself. And the one that struck out uh, or struck me was that he said the word, he wrote the word integrity. And he wanted to lead a Department of State that had integrity. And he spoke or he wrote, I should say, um, quite a bit about how important it was that his staff were members of a team and that he was part of their team. And to your point, Roger, he said at the beginning of his notes, we all work at the behest of the president. This is not George Shultz's policy. This is Ronald Reagan's policies, and we are here to make them happen. And so it was a really interesting thing to see, um, all his little sentences you know, about how he wanted to run his department. Um, but it was also very moving in a way, because you could tell, um, and we'll get to this at some point, I'm yeah. sure, that he is or was a Marine at heart um i come from a military family where you take care of your soldiers right when you're the commander i believe george schultz took care of his marines when he was the commander and when he was the secretary of state he took care of his people and he wrote that in his
4: notes
2: uh uh, philip did you not see that buck slip is that is that is that accurate i I missed it okay um (laughs) uh, all right we can always second edition of the book (laughs) and can can include that in the footnote But I want to pick up on a thread that Francis uh, just raised, which is, you know, it wasn't Secretary Schultz's first rodeo when he came to the State Department. As was mentioned earlier, right, he had led three other departments, Mm -hmm. Labor, Treasury, OMB, uh, and for very different presidents. I mean, uh, President Nixon and then President Reagan. Philip, can you just reflect on kind of how each of those departments and those times leading agencies, the turbulence, of course, of, of the Nick, Nixon administration prepared him for the role of Secretary of State. Uh, and then what do we see? What are the, kind of the common thread in his leadership role in each of those agencies ultimately culminating in, in Foggy Bottom?
4: So, you know, it's not, I think, well-known, uh, certainly not as well-known as it should be, that as Secretary of Labor in the Nixon administration, George... Uh, played a pivotal role in the desegregation of urban school systems in the South. Mm-hmm. There was a task force that was formed, uh, that was led by Vice President Spiro Agnew. But Agnew really had no interest in it, and uh, I frank, frankly, I don't think, was interested in desegregating schools to begin with. Uh, so the burden of this uh, task force fell to George Shultz, uh, and he ran it, in a way that was uh, indicative of some of his leadership qualities. Uh, So what they did, I'll tell you very briefly, uh, they brought delegations from each of the southern states to Washington separately. They brought them to the White House, uh, and then they had Attorney General Mitchell come in and say to the delegations, the delegations were made up of black leaders and white leaders, people who favored segrega- uh, segregation still and people who wanted to desegregate the schools. Mitchell would come in and say to them, the law says that you have to desegregate. The Supreme Court has said you have to desegregate. But you know, we would like you to do it voluntarily rather than under the force of federal troops or a federal force of some kind. So they were, they were given a warning And then Schultz would get them together uh, in the cabinet room at the White House and they would talk. And the first meeting of this kind was with the Mississippi delegation. Uh, So they started talking and they were arguing. uh, And this conversation went on for about 40 minutes. And then Schultz stood up and started to walk out of the room. And one of his aides, one of the White House aides, is running behind him and said, Mr. Secretary, what are you doing? you know, you have to keep chairing this meeting. And he said, no, people will come to agreement better on their own than if I sit in there and try to dictate terms to them. Uh, And that was his leadership style. And it actually worked in the case of school desegregation. Mm -hmm. So at labor, he made a major contribution on civil rights. At Treasury, he played a major role uh, uh, on a number of extremely important economic issues. In fact, uh, you know the, the currency valuations, which had been based on uh, the dollar and gold reserves in the United States, that was changed uh, to a plan of floating exchange rates, which is really George Shultz's plan that still exists today. Uh, and at OMB, he was the inaugural director, so he was the first person... Uh, to take the job of budget director, which is what it had been previously, and create this new uh, organization that had been authorized by Congress, the Office of Management and Budget. So by the time he, and then he came out here and worked at uh, Bechtel after the Nixon administration imploded, uh, when he gets to be Secretary of State, here's a man who is a very skillful manager of large organizations, He's a manager who believes in listening carefully to what people tell him. He's a manager who has faith in the staff that he inherited. I think a lot of uh, appointees to top officials in Washington feel they have to come in with their own entourage. No. When George became Secretary of State, the people that he appointed to senior positions, most of them were career diplomats. Uh, that was a signature of his faith and his staff. Uh, he was incredibly open-minded. Uh, George was always looking around the corner or looking over the horizon. Uh, in the mid-1980s, he's in Moscow meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev. They're there to talk about arms control and U.S.-Soviet relations. And what does he do? He stops the conversation at one point, practically gets out a, a blackboard... Uh, and starts talking to Mikhail Gorbachev about the information technology revolution. Mid-1980s, there are no cell phones yet. Uh, You know, we're just at the dawn of the IT revolution, and he's in there telling Mikhail Gorbachev, the world's going to change. Closed societies are going to be impacted in unpredictable ways by the IT revolution. So those are a few of his leadership qualities that I think were evident.
2: And built out over his Mm -hmm. times. Uh, Kyron, I wanted to pick up on a thread that Mm -hmm. Philip um, uh, began with, and we talked about this uh, before we we got on the stage, which is his career as an academic and an education, and particularly um, his approach to uh, education and race and, and managing kind of ahead of the curve in terms of thinking about diversity and all the different ways diversity is important. Uh, give, give us your take on, on, on that because you had a good insight into into those issues.
3: I, I like how um, Phil put it, um, the years at labor were so critical. I think they are critical to the role that he played in the end of the Cold War. Um, and I think they're also, they were informed by his time as an academic. The period in which he was dean of the um, business school at University of Chicago I think it's where we begin to see his leadership abilities, his sense, um, how he thinks about interest, his commitment to human rights. And during those years, I think he was maybe the first dean um, at a major university to go down to the historically black colleges in the South and begin a recruitment program. That was something that he was really proud proud of, and he I think it infused what he did in labor in particular. Hmm. But labor is important because it's always been of interest to me, and I don't know if anyone's picked up on this. Um, Reagan and Schultz weren't grand strategists like Nixon and Kissinger, but then they ended up having a grand strategy like the four-part agenda that um, made a lot more sense than detente. But the big point is that two labor men, one, a labor negotiator, Schultz, and Reagan, who'd been head of the Screen Actors Guild, um, representing a labor union, um, ended the Cold War. I think they looked at it in really practical terms as a bargaining problem. And so they didn't need to get big, grand outcomes. They just kept chipping away at the problems. And they've never really, I think, been given credit for this somewhat mundane approach to diplomacy that had a huge outcome for the international system. And another part of it that I've heard from the the um, my co-panelists that I think is important to keep reinforcing, that um, being principled and having integrity, I think, is a key part of having policy outcomes like the end of the Cold War. Um, if we put different characters in, and, and at the head of the State Department and... Um, those around Schultz, I don't know if we would have had the outcome that we did. It meant really submerging one's ego Mm -hmm. to one's principle. And um, Schultz was not as hardline as Reagan. That's no surprise. Um, But he didn't try to undermine his president and take policy in a radically different direction. That shows restraint and respect. We just don't have that in Washington today, or at least in the administration that I just served in.
4: Hmm. So if I can pick oh, up please on go that ahead, for yeah. a second. Um, I think you're exactly right about the way they approach the world. And, and, and Schultz kind of boiled it down to an axiom that he had, uh, which seems very simple, but it's actually profound in a way when you, when you think about it. He was a consummate problem solver. And the way he put it is, when he tried to solve problems, whether it was desegregation of the southern school systems, labor disputes, strikes, the Cold War, this is the way he thought about it. When you argue over principle, it's very hard to come to agreement. But if you see the issue as a problem to solve, People are good at solving problems. And that was the approach that he brought, really, to his role as Secretary of State.
2: One more follow-up to you, and instance, I want to go back to the military piece. But this dynamic between Secretary Schultz and, and presidents, I mean, I'm going to focus on, on, on President Reagan for a moment because uh, that's where I sit, in the Reagan <laughs> Foundation. Uh, I'll have to bring in the Nixon Foundation to get the follow-up question on President Nixon. Um, <laughs> how did President Reagan view... Secretary Schultz. I mean, he wasn't the, the first pick to become Secretary of State, of course, that was Al Haig. Mm-hmm. But of course, mm-hmm. the, Schultz probably was the most influ- influential mm-hmm. cabinet official in his administration. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you read that he would sit next to President Reagan in the Oval, next to his desk, and mm-hmm. they go through the speeches and the paper. I mean, there was, it became what, what strikes me as just a, you know, an observer um, an intimate relationship. Um, founded in trust. But wh- give us a sense of, of how the president viewed his secretary of state.
4: Well, the relationship with Reagan didn't start as effectively and constructively as it ended. Uh, and the reason is they didn't know each other that well. Uh, you know, George Shultz had advised Reagan uh, on economic policy issues when he was governor of California, and then uh, uh, when he was running for president, and then in his first year as president, George was the chair of an uh, economic advisory council. He comes to Washington as Secretary of State in 82, and the, the two men have not really talked much, if at all, over the course of their friendship and relationship about international relations, uh, arms control, U.S.-Soviet relations, the Cold War. Uh, and George arrived in the White uh, in Washington at a time when Reagan, as many of you remember, was was on a, a big military buildup, uh, very belligerent language about the Soviet Union, uh, sort of parting from the the policy of containing the Soviet Union, which had been the Cold War policy, to trying to roll back the Soviet Union. Uh, and he didn't really fit in that group around. President Reagan. uh, And he ran into a buzzsaw of opposition. It took him three years uh, to overcome that, Uh, and uh, that didn't happen, by the way, without a huge assist from Nancy Reagan, uh, who wanted to see her husband achieve something in international relations. So by the time you get to the second term, this is when George kind of consolidates power, to use a Washington term, uh, becomes the key advisor and partner with Reagan on Cold War issues. And you can see, to go to your question specifically, Reagan, liked Schultz, respected him, trusted him, uh, but he didn't rely on him uh, in his first term. Uh, There was a little bit of a distance between the men and uh, over time that distance narrowed. And then we get to these scenes that you alluded to where they are working hand in glove together to try to bring the Cold War to an end.
2: Quick quick follow up on that. It strikes me, you know, you're, you're saying this first few years from 82 and 85, you know, they're kind of more distant and then 85, they come together. Of course that's when gorbachev emerges right uh in some respect the 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 close working relationship uh, may have been a result of the new soviet premier who was someone that president reagan felt he can do business with and enter the secretary of state to try to facilitate that occurring
4: yeah so i i think the way to think about it the cold war would not have wound down and ended absent ronald reagan George Shultz, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Edward Shevardnadze. It was the four of them. Uh, And if you pick one of them out of that quartet, it might not have evolved the way it did. The main point of my book, the biography, is if you were absent George Shultz, I don't believe it would have happened at all. Uh, But it did require that kind of rare moment in history when you have an alignment of four leaders willing to look outside conventional thinking. Uh, uh, And it's interesting, all four of them came from outside their capital city Mm. and outside the mindset of their capitals. You know, George grew up in New York, uh, went to, you know, Eastern schools, came out to California. Uh, Reagan was a Californian. You could say Princeton, it's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Reagan was a Californian. Gorbachev grew up in the south of the Soviet Union in an agricultural region, and Chevernadze uh, of course, was Georgian, so they did not grow up invested in the in the shibboleths and the and the and the beliefs of the Cold War. I think that's one of the main reasons they were able to break through want to go ahead Karen.
3: yeah i um, I want to disagree just a little okay. bit I appreciate your insights, but I think that um, we don't really know the um, inner workings of the Schultz-Reagan relationship because no one was truly close to Ronald Reagan. And if you look at his diaries, um, they don't reveal much about um, even the disputes among his cabinet members, Mm -hmm. in particular the one with Cap Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense and Schultz. He's incredibly diplomatic in writing. He doesn't reveal his hand. And um, that's why I think the Reagan books that I did or um, did so well is that they started the process of revealing just a little bit about Reagan. But we know so little about what he thought about anyone, including members of his family. Um, So I think having a working relationship didn't mean that Nancy was was pretty clear about um, she even said it um, that there were times herself when she didn't know. So their working relationship didn't mean that they were really necessarily in sync when Edmund Morris, the official biographer, was um, asked Reagan, who's your best friend? He said, Judge William Clark. Yes, mm-hmm. And I think that that's absolutely the case, that they had a lot more in common as Californians, as horsemen, um, as um, even social conservatives, um, none of which really fit George Shultz. And so I think it's just in, important um, to kind of remember that. And as important as the four members that you mentioned, mm-hmm of the um, American-Russian team, Soviet team, were to the end of the Cold War, I think Margaret Thatcher, the Pope, and um, in solidarity in Poland um, really should have equal billing because without um, their um, activities and insight in Europe and bringing Europe along, um, I don't think it would have been possible for the Cold War to end. And it was Margaret Thatcher who said around 1984, yeah, exactly. it's all over but the shouting. She could see the future mm-hmm. that at the end of the Cold War before the Berlin Wall. And
2: she saw Gorbachev first, right? Yes. She was she wondering, Clara's him. Reagan, that there was an opportunity to... Right,
3: and you know, before the INF Treaty, yeah. that there was a leader in Europe who could see that the future was coming.
4: And don't forget Helmut Kohl. Yes. Uh, Because the list keeps growing. (laughs) Helmut Kohl, against tremendous pressure, uh, permitted the deployment of uh, American intermediate range missiles Mm -hmm. and nuclear tip missiles in West Germany. Yes. And George thought that was one of the pivotal moments to bring the Cold War to an end because that put the Kremlin on notice. Uh, that there was no way they were going to push the United States around. Mm -hmm. Uh, Euro
2: missiles, Mm -hmm. for sure. Let's pivot for a little bit just to uh, the personality, the person, uh, George P. Schultz. Uh, And, and Francis, I'll I'll, I'll move over to you uh, to talk about the military side. Um, I only had a handful of opportunities to uh, spend time with with Secretary Schultz, but one I remember uh, was impactful was it was a, a small dinner uh, at the Reagan Library in their Oval Office replica, and everybody was introducing themselves. And, of course, the last person uh, to introduce himself was, was was George Schultz, who didn't need an introduction. But uh, when he said the table, I, I imagine he did this all the time, when it got to him, he said, George P. Schultz, Marine. Right. That's right. Well, we've heard that before. And that, that I felt was uh, as much true to himself as it was um, uh, just to kind of, uh, make the people around the table laugh. But in terms of his appreci- appreciation for service members, for service, mm-hmm. uh, how important was that for him as a Secretary of State and then a lasting legacy uh, for someone uh, who, who served and, and, and supports those who, who serve? Mm-hmm. Yep, I think you use the mic. Hi, okay.
5: hello. Um, so this became an interest of mine, not because it has anything to do with Central America, which is what I'm really researching, but I kept coming across... George Schultz and his incredible affection and affinity and love for the service and for the Marine Corps, and so there's a couple of things. I mean, the op-ed that you referred to a little while ago, uh, right when he turned 100, he ran sort of a top 10 greatest pieces of advice article in the Washington Post, and one of those pieces of advice it was number four, I believe. Um, or sort of an, an anecdote was about his time as a Marine during World War II in the Pacific, and he cited by name a sergeant um, from his unit who had been killed, and the impact that that sergeant had had on his life and his leadership. And so, my takeaway from that, almost almost 80 years later. Was that he felt so strongly about this one man who led in combat, led his Marines, um, and therefore absolutely affected George Schultz's life and his way of treating a team and of leading. And so he wrote that, you know, upon his 100th birthday. One of the things that I did find um, in his papers, which really fascinated me, was a back and forth between Schultz and the commandant of the Marine Corps during the Reagan administration, whose name was P.X. Kelly. And so in 1986, you probably remember, there's rebels raging in Uganda, 1984 to 1986. And there was a Marine detachment in Kampala there to protect the ambassador, the ambassador's residence and, and the embassy, which is what Marines do abroad at for the Department of State. Um, it's diplomatic security. And so this one Marine had written a tale, essentially. It was like, it was like a chapter out of a, a Faulkner novel. It was seven pages of one sentence, you know, this <laughs> Marine going on and on about the work that he had done as a sergeant. And a sergeant, you know, at that time, it was probably a 22-year-old young man, um, served for about four, four and a half years to become a sergeant, and he'd written this incredible story about protecting the ambassador and the ambassador's residence in Kampala. Now, this story had been sent to his commander, who was a captain, and that had been sent to his brigade commander, who was a colonel, and that was sent to P. X. Kelly, who was the commandant of the Marine Corps, this handwritten letter, and P. X. Kelly sent it to Secretary Schultz, saying look at this Marine, look at this representative um, of the United States protecting the ambassador abroad, look what he did. And George Schultz read this long letter from this young Marine and wrote back the most beautiful response to the commandant, also recommending that this young Marine be awarded a medal for his valor. And that, to me, really spoke of Schultz's. Understanding of what it meant to lead, but also what it meant to follow. And that's what I think we've all been talking about to a certain extent, that he is such an incredible man because he was able to build a team of trust. And you don't see that very much anymore. You don't see that on a bipartisan level. Um, he worked very hard to pivot quickly. I wanted to talk about this bipartisan commission that he pushed, um, and he put Kissinger in charge. But the most important thing about this commission on Central America that George Schultz really um, spearheaded with the help of Scoop Jackson, who is a Democratic senator, um, was that it was equally representative of both sides of the fence. And it did amazing things for Reagan. It got Reagan's policies pushed through in Central America. It got more money from Congress. And it was really because Schultz embraced the idea of a team, whether those teammates were Democrats or Republicans. To him, it didn't matter. It was the mission. And the mission is what's important to a Marine.
2: um, Kyron, I want to go go to you because you you had the personal relationship with uh, George Schultz. And I wonder if you could just reflect on... How he impacted you, your career, um, and kind of when you think of those those personal interactions, what you might share uh, with the audience, what, what comes with top of mind when you reflect on your interactions with him.
3: So we've been talking about what a wonderful leader he is and how he builds teams, but he's also someone who can be tough on his team. <laughs> and we have here, and I will be remiss if I don't mention him, um, Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz is here um, tonight. Um, he's seated with... Um, the Tobys, and he played a critical role at the State Department during the Reagan administration. He was so much better at his job than than I, than I was. I had the, the job that he had. He is found that, a this way, is the
2: policy planning he job. He found a yeah. way to get he was out of it. just getting quickly. it ready for you. Yeah, That's he what's... found
3: a way to get out of it quickly <laughs> and, um, and, and move on to um, the um, Bureau of um, East Asian and Pacific Affairs. And I've heard that he became a much nicer person <laughs> when he got out of policy planning. But Schultz is also someone who um, did not suffer fools and could be very tough. Um, And you would know, I mean, there was some, you know, potential for Irish anger um, (laughs) and it was always there. I remember working on the memoir. I was still in my 20s and Henry Kissinger was coming to visit, visit us at Hoover. And I said, well, I think I'll join that meeting. And he said, only if you don't say a word. (laughs) And um, but he was, you know, he was, I think, a loving person. He was someone that it's it's quite remarkable Um, that in every decade um, of his adult life, he was relevant to that decade. Mm. And he kept reinventing himself. I think the um, post-Secretary of State years are some of the most interesting because he was working on issues that someone at his age wouldn't. Energy, technology. He was looking to the future. He was in the conversation. Um, in his final years, he began to talk and write about managing over diversity. He could see that America was changing.
2: Explain, explain what what he was focusing. I'm not on. sure exactly okay. what
3: he meant, but I think what he meant was the future's here, with um, immigrants, with Americans, with diverse talents from diverse backgrounds, and they will be part, more part of the the future than we've ever seen in the in the history of our nation. It won't look like. I think in his thinking, the way it did when he was coming along of the 1950s Hmm. and his time at MIT. But he was trying to really talk about those issues. And there was a moment at Hoover where I think he was close to 90. And he gave one of our talks in July. You were probably there um, to the board of um, Of overseers and to the major donors and the fellows. And he had to be seated at that point, his legs, he was struggling. And he talked about managing over-diversity. And he said something I'd never heard someone say at that point, and now we say it every day. But he said the dangerous border is not the U.S.-Mexico border, but it's the Mexico-Guatemala border. And then he went into a a, a deep conversation about um, migration. And so every major topic, 21st century topic, in these new decades, he was relevant to the conversation.
2: Yeah, it reminded me of, uh, I I talked about the dinner I had with him, which was a fond memory, and then Mm the traumatic memory is Mm -hmm. I once had an opportunity to present uh, in the Board of Overseers at at the Hoover Institution, and Mm -hmm. Secretary Schultz was there, Mm -hmm. and I I was asked to speak, so I gave my presentation and finished, and he was seated to my left. Mm -hmm. I think he was like 97 Mm -hmm. years old at the time, Mm -hmm. and he proceeded to scowl, <laughs> <laughs> and critique everything I said <laughs> it was it was okay well, I, so it was a learning moment, uh, but he did not hold back uh thoroughly until uh, ninety seven I imagine the years after but Philip why don 't you talk about uh, your relationship and 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 uh, perhaps some anecdotes that capture that relationship your role i mean what you, you, the book you are you're, you're about to publish and uh the exclusive access you 've had how did that may perhaps come about? I mean, we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, Give some insight into your relationship in the person.
4: Well, it began uh, on an airplane, and Paul Wolfowitz was on that plane uh, (laughs) when George was flying to the ASEAN meeting uh, uh, in the early 80s. I forget which year. I think it was 83. uh, And uh, it was my maiden uh, voyage with the Secretary of State. The New York Times diplomatic correspondent of that era, Bernie Gurtzman, had Mm -hmm. uh, demurred to do something in Washington that, that needed doing. Uh, so that was when I first met him. Uh, and then I took some other trips with him when he was secretary. Uh, early on, I think it was after this trip uh, that took us to uh, Manila and uh, uh, Bangkok, and then we went on from there to the Middle East, he s- says to me at one day, he pulls me aside, and he says, I hear you play tennis. And I said, I do, Mr. Secretary. He said, bring your racket next time. Uh, so next time we were on a trip uh, through South America and I brought my racket uh, and I'm in my hotel room in Rio, you know, filing my story and whatever's going on. The telephone rings and it's the executive assistant to the secretary of state says, the secretary would like to meet you in the lobby in 30 minutes to, uh, and then go play tennis with you? Uh, so I, I go and we, off we go to this court in Rio uh, and I, st- st- uh, you know, set myself up on the other side of the net. And I thought to myself, OK, what happens now? Can, <laughs> can, can, you know, can I def- can I beat the secretary of state in singles? we uh, got going to ride on the plane again. <laughs> so fortunately, the day was saved because he said, let's just volley. Uh, so we, we never had to play a game. But we played again in Moscow later. So my relationship with him was was friendly but appropriate for a journalist and a government official. It was not particularly close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was working on the book I did about the uh, effort to eliminate nuclear weapons that George was critical uh, in leading with Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and Bill Perry and... The late Sid Drell at Stanford. Uh, he pulled me aside one day. This was a great George Schultz moment. Okay, those of you in the Bay Area, you know the big game Stanford Cal, right? We're at a pre big game lunch at Stanford with the leadership of the two universities, and George asked me to come over to the corner with him. And he said, uh, What's your next book project? And I said, I don't have one. Uh, I'm trying to finish this book that I'm writing about you and Henry and the others. He said, would you be interested in writing my biography? And I said, "Uh, well, that's quite an invitation. Thank you. Uh, And then as an inducement, uh, he said, I'll give you exclusive access to my archive at Hoover. It's sealed until I die. Uh, So long story short. Uh, I spent, you know, close to a decade working on this book. Uh, I've interviewed him literally dozens of times, uh, traveled with him, uh, and uh, spent a great deal of time in this archive, which you now fortunately have access to. Uh, And our relationship uh, never got close because I I think we both understood it couldn't. Uh, And the arrangement that I made with him when I agreed to do the book was very simple. I said, George, it's your life, but it's my book. Mm. And he said, I completely understand. And to the day he died, he read chapters of the book before he died. He never once tried to bend the book in a direction he wanted. Wow. Did he point out documents
2: you might want to look at after reading a chapter, or <laughs> yeah, you I, might well, want to talk to that person? Yeah, and no, everything? he,
4: he, you know, he would say, you know, I don't know if you're giving enough emphasis to this or that. Right. Or, you know, I don't remember it that way, but that that's fine.
2: I recall being in his office, he would, like, mention something and he'd call in his assistant and yeah, no, pull out a no, document. No. I mean, he had this kind of encyclopedic. Kyron, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to add to that, but he, he seemed to, like, have these things that you know, at the tip of his tongue. Or He did, but right? he
4: never, you know, I give him great credit for this. He never once said, I wish you would change this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I had complete editorial independence. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, extraordinary uh, doing a book about someone as significant as George Schultz. I think okay. most historical figures would want to lean on their biographer mm-hmm. uh, sure. to shape the book. He never did that. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I wanted to throw a question. Uh, Karen and me want to react to something Philip just said, but it, it, it relates to it. Um, George Schultz later in life, uh, really focus on the world of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, nuclear zero was a, mm-hmm. a priority. Obviously, collaborate with others like Henry Kissinger. Why do you think that was? Why, why, why did that kind of come into just sort of high relief for him in those years uh, after leaving office? Maybe um, you can comment on that also, Francis.
3: I think that's one of the areas where Reagan may have um, rubbed off on him. Um, because Reagan also abhorred, uh, abhorred nuclear weapons. And um, if you read his statements, Reagan's in December 1987 around the Washington Treaty, the first nuclear disarmament treaty of the Cold War, he said, um, almost jokingly, this is what I had proposed my first few months in office. And so I think there, that's where they actually met um, on this issue of, Ridding the World of Nuclear Mm. Weapons. And in his later years, I guess they were called the Four Horsemen. Right. And, you know, with Sid and Sam Nunn Nunn and Henry Kissinger, and they wrote, they had conferences at Hoover. I think it was a passion for them, and they were thinking about the future. Their great-grandchildren, their grandchildren, they wanted to make the world safe. And I think it was really driving so much of what he did. And it goes back to my point about being relevant in areas um, that he had necessarily been a dominant voice at the um, the final decades of his life. I also wanted to um, offer, I think you were trying to press me for something more personal um, about Schultz. Um, he played a key role at the Hoover Institution in terms of making sure that we were a community. Mm-hmm. And he cared about fellows and he cared about staff and the way he treated people. And when he would hear that something had happened, he would often show up in someone's office, never mind for some reason, Um, but he (laughs) would show up in offices and just talk to people. Um, He got word that my father died more than 10 years ago, and I saw him in the hallway, and he said, "Um, I'm having my annual Kissinger party, and I want you there. And I thought, this is just so horrible. Why would I want to go to a party? I'm now planning a funeral. But I went to the party, and we just sat together, at the, at the penthouse in San Francisco um, with Charlotte had put on this great party. And it was just really reassuring. Mm. We didn't say that much, but we just sat together. And I think that's the way he often helped and supported his colleagues, not always in words, but in deeds.
2: You mentioned Charlotte. A um, question from the audience uh, is, how did Charlotte's influence affect George Schultz in his career. Maybe, Philip, you can comment on that. Well, you know,
4: Charlotte was a wonderful partner for George. Uh, Those of you who knew Obie, George's first wife, you could not imagine two more different women than Obie and Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obie was very uh, quiet and reserved, uh, unflashy, uh, and then Charlotte, the sort of, uh, you know... uh, uh, wonderful, outgoing, uh, ebullient figure of San Francisco in California. Uh, and California. And I think what she did was to bring out the joy in George. Uh, maybe it was a function when you're Secretary of State, you know, there's a certain soberness about what you're doing. Once uh, George and Charlotte got together, this exuberant, George emerged, uh, loved going to parties, Uh, you know, they were the sort of uh, toast of the town, as many of you know. Some of you were probably there at City Hall a number of years ago for this uh, uh, extravaganza where George dressed up as Superman, uh, and Charlotte was the damsel in distress being lowered from the <laughs> ceiling uh you know yelling help 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 yeah. and george r- rips off his jacket and there's a superman shirt underneath <laughs> i mean you know i frankly if someone had told me that george schultz would do that when he when i knew him as secretary of state i would have said what have you been dr- smoking uh so
2: <laughs> that's some influence mm-hmm. <laughs> okay uh, we have a just a couple minutes left and i want to get at uh uh a couple of questions from the audience. Um, let's deal with current events here for a second. Maybe we'll go down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia's just brutal invasion of, of Ukraine and the war um, that we're witnessing and, and, and watching every day. It, it, there was a, a living former Secretary of State that made headlines a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, his name's come up a few times saying, we have to come up with a, uh, a strategy that doesn't humiliate Russia. Right, and it and it was kind of the ultra-realist uh Kissingerian way of looking at a conflict mm-hmm. and countering this impulse um, mm-hmm. to stand with the Ukrainians in freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, would George Schultz take that tack vis-a-vis uh, US policy uh, with Russia's war in Ukraine? Um, I think we're running out of time, but give us quick answers going down the line, Francis.
5: So my quick answer is that it seems to me that everything George Shultz did had a morality um, mm-hmm. underpinning it. And so I'm not sure what he would do with Russia and Ukraine, but it would be a moral response, I believe, mm-hmm. rather than a coldly realist response. Mm-hmm.
4: He, uh, I have no doubt he would have supported uh, the arms aid that we're giving Ukraine. Uh, I, I think he probably would have been. Restrained as Biden has been about putting American uh, forces into Ukraine. I don't know what he would have advised uh, as the war reaches a kind of uh, standoff or a point at which negotiation might go. I don't know. I, I dare not uh, guess whether he would have settled for some kind of uh, political deal that would carve off part of the eastern Ukraine. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs>
3: um, I agree with what I've heard so far. I think morality and foreign policy was critical for him. Um, and, I th- um, and I do think that he would have supported as much arms, aid short of war, which is actually really hard to do, but he would have been at the forefront of supporting, supporting it. Um, but two other things. I think he would be returning to all of the work he did on energy, Independence, yes, and so um, and he would focus probably on Germany and Nord Stream two, and there I think he would be trying to make ground as quickly as possible, and then finally I think he would be focusing on the Germans in a larger way. This was this this now is not the Germany of Helmut Kohl, mm-hmm. um, the anti-Americanism, um, the tilt toward Russia. I think he'd be working on the diplomatic front. Um, to bring Germany back into um, a pro-Western, pro-American stance. He'd use that opportunity.
2: Let's take a uh, zoom out for a second. I got very focused on the uh, headline of of, of the moment of today. Um, But, Karin, why don't we stick with you? We're obviously in this moment of great power competition is the Washington policy we have talking about it. But, you know, the rise of autocracies, China... Putinism, so there's there's rhyming with with the Cold War and the challenges we had uh, then with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. What do you think uh, are the salient kind of lessons from George Shultz's uh, diplomacy during the Cold War that may be applicable mm-hmm. um, to how we ought to address uh, today's challenges with 21st century um, authoritarianism? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, one, back to our earlier point yeah. about um, human rights, um, because once people understand that you care about them and that you separate um, people from their regime, they actually trust you more. And that was a lot of the Reagan-Schultz story, is that they never condemned the Soviet people, the right. Russian people, right. but the Kremlin government. And I think they would be making that distinction Um, very boldly during this time with the rise of authoritarianism. And also, I think they would spend less time on great power competition than statesmen are now. They did something that I think should be done again. We call it now the global south. But the Reagan doctrine um, was an attempt to meet the Soviet regime on the ground in the developing world and make it a lot more difficult, Afghanistan, Angola... Um, and Central America and that's what we need to do again, not so much direct competition with China and Russia, but if we can persuade the emerging powers in the global south that Ambassador Wolfowitz worked so hard on the Indonesias of the world and others um, India, Pakistan Nigeria, Brazil there's no future for us without um, some deep ties with those countries, I think that's what Schultz would do
2: Philip, do you have any thoughts about kind of salient um, um, takeaways from George Schultz's diplomacy during the Cold War that you know are relevant and, and applicable as we deal with these challenges?
4: Well, he was certainly prepared to uh, conduct diplomatic uh, discussions with uh, not just authoritarian leaders, but totalitarian leaders, which is what the Soviet Union was when he first took office. Uh, I think... You know, he, he was, at the end of the day, a pragmatist. And as I said at the beginning of this program, the consummate uh, problem solver. So I I don't think that George would be someone who would say we cannot talk to Putin, as, as obviously difficult as that is now and as uh, irrational as Putin somehow seems to be. Uh, he would try uh, to figure out how to conduct some kind of conversation Mm -hmm. uh, with Putin and and President Xi and China uh, and and look for ways to moderate the tensions in the world because that ultimately was what he tried to do and achieved when he was Secretary of State was to moderate and then end the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Francis, what strikes you as you...
5: So the one thing we didn't talk about, and I'm surprised we didn't yet, but most of us all know it, is Schultz's theory of diplomatic gardening, and I think that's actually very important nowadays, right? So he wrote in his memoir, he wrote this very beautiful few paragraphs about what it meant um, to be a constant gardener as a diplomat, which essentially meant you treat your diplomatic relations um, as a garden that you need to care for and prune and tend to and water – but you also need to weed. Mm-hmm. And so my sense now is that in some circles, we are tending our garden um, in very small ways, or we'll look at certain regions of the world and we'll tend that garden, but we'll ignore, to Chiron's point, mm-hmm. other regions of the world. And I don't think that George Schultz, if he were alive today, would have done that. I think he would have recommended that we tend the garden equally in the global South to your point, Mm -hmm. and in Europe and Russia and in China. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can learn from that. But I think it's a very beautiful way of reminding um, those who lead that it's important to nurture those relationships, even if they're difficult relationships, totalitarian relationships, Mm -hmm. dictators, you name it. Um, He was a master at nurturing Mm -hmm. those relationships as a diplomat. We
4: we talked
2: about that metaphor. Was he actually a gardener, Phil?
4: Uh, Well, he has a farm uh, in the Berkshires, uh, which his uh, parents uh, had purchased, uh, and he inherited. Uh, I spent a long weekend there with him. Uh, Actually, it was very gracious of him uh, to invite me uh, and to uh, uh, set up the opportunity for me to interview his children uh, who were there that weekend. Uh, And uh, we went to Tanglewood. We listened to Yo-Yo Ma play Dvorak's cello concerto. Uh, George cooked steak over, you know, hot co- white hot coals, which he loved to do. I did not see him garden. lift a <laughs> finger in the garden. <laughs> 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 the metaphor only. <laughs> uh, let's, let's stick on the
2: personal side, perhaps not a gardener, um, but you, you obviously had opportunity to engage um, with his family, question from the audience. I was curious about who was George Shultz's best friend and why was this person, assuming he had one, uh, was his best
4: friend? Well, he had best friends at different stages of his life. So there was uh, Topper, who was a classmate in Englewood, New Jersey, where he grew up, and they went off to different prep schools and reunited at Princeton, and he was very close to that person for many years. Uh, you know, in his time uh, in government, uh, I think uh, you know he was not ever close f- friends in a kind of intimate friendship way w- one might think of with any of the people he worked with. Because we talked we,
2: about Casper Weinberger yeah, before, yeah, and a fellow yeah, San Francisco And he and go- Casper Weinberger not-
4: he, did not see eye to eye on many issues. And there was a kind of personal friction between them that I, I get into in the book. Uh, but the friendship I would point to, the one I could witness myself and, and, and almost feel the power of, was his friendship with Sid Drill at Stanford. Uh, and those of you who did not know Sid, Sid was one of the world's great people, uh, a world-class physicist, Uh, who devoted himself, as George did, to the nation's service, uh, uh, working as a consultant over the years to the CIA and and other government agencies. They didn't meet until George stepped down as Secretary of State. Mm. And when he came to Stanford, the two men got together and they bonded. Uh, And it was just a wonderful thing to see that friendship develop over the years. It was quite poignant. Uh, And Sid died first. And it left a, a deep sadness in George for a while, uh, but that was a really special. Thing.
2: Why, why? Why was that? Spe- why did they come together? The
4: because they shared this passion to eliminate nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. uh, and because George understood that Sid was a world class expert on physics and nuclear mm-hmm. weapons technology. He was not George. Schultz was not, uh, and so he relied a great deal on Sid for technical advice, especially during this period when George was focused on the effort to eliminate nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And and I think you know, yes, Henry Kissinger played an important role. Uh, Bill Perry played a critically important role. Uh, Sam Nunn played a critically important role. But I think that the 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 relationship at the heart of that initiative was the George shultz Sidrell relationship.
2: It's kind of pivoting away from the personal, but hitting on this very important policy area in terms of nuclear weapons and in terms of national security. Um, and when we'll wrap up with with, with this one here. Um, we're in this world now where the salience of nuclear weapons is is, is, is really... Increased um, Of course, these n- you know, arms control agreements mm-hmm. are no longer just between the United States, and you know, or, or it's not relevant if it's only between the United States and, and Russia and Russia of course, and the United States no longer are tied b- bound by the INF treaty. China mm-hmm. of course, uh, is modernizing mm-hmm. as well as others developing programs North Korea, Iran. Um, do you think Karen, the, the, that would change george Schultz 's outlook? given the way that events have unfolded or um, the approach would remain the same as it it, uh, had in in his later years?
3: I think it probably would intensify his efforts. Um, And we faced it in the Trump administration for really the first time that any future major nuclear weapons agreement can't just be bilateral and um, that China has to come to the table. And that's an incredibly difficult problem and I think Schultz would have loved to be in that fight.
2: I think we're going to have to end it here, but uh, another problem we wish we had George Schultz solving for us, Um, wish we could spend more time, but we've reached the end of tonight's program of the inaugural George P. Schultz lecture. I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting tonight's event. Another thanks to uh, Toby Philanthropies and... Ted and Diane Toby for the support of tonight's program. Uh, if you'd like to revisit this or any other program of the Commonwealth Club, you will find the video on the club's YouTube channel or website. I'm Roger Zackheim. Tonight's Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher.